Now, please stay tuned for Forthright Radio. Welcome to this Forthright Radio for November 25th, 2022. I'm Joy LaClaire. Our guest today is Sinyi Professor of Chinese Management at the Judge Business School of Cambridge University, Christopher Marquis. He and his co-author, Kunyuan Xiao, have written a book, Mao and Markets, The Communist Roots of Chinese Enterprise, published by Yale University Press. It explores the seeming contradiction of capitalism under Chinese Communist Party rule. Part history, part economics, it uses the tools of data analysis to assess how China's economic success is being shaped by the ideology and philosophy of Chairman Mao Zedong. Professor Marquis' interest in China began when he was in high school, when he did an independent research project on the role of Confucianism in contemporary China. He first traveled there in 1996, and he's marveled at the speed with which, for example, the mudflats across the Huangpu River from Shanghai's waterfront became the city of Pudong, the financial capital of China, where three of the tallest buildings in the world now stand among 20 miles of high-rises. He spoke with entrepreneurs from many regions of China and brings their very human stories to his narrative. His earlier book, Better Business, How the B Corp Movement is Remaking Capitalism, focused on the ways companies can effectively shift from a shareholder to stakeholder orientation. We spoke with Christopher Marquis on November 21st, 2022. Welcome to Forthright Radio, Professor Christopher Marquis. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, thanks so much, Joy. Great to be with you. Chris, your book, Mao and Markets, The Communist Roots of Chinese Enterprise, co-written with Kunyan Chao, comes at a time when in the United States, Violence against Asian Americans is on the rise, and our history of things like the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, which wasn't repealed until World War II and still left in place a quota of only 105 Chinese immigrants per year, as well as the imperialist invasions into China from the 19th into the early 20th centuries, Not to mention the extreme reactionary posture of U.S. politicians to anything considered socialist, much less communist. But now, facing the indisputable success of communism in China, many of us are perplexed by the rise of a seemingly capitalistic path that has contributed to that success. And now, Tensions having arisen between the U.S. and China with former President Trump's tariffs, which President Biden has left in place, and Speaker Nancy Pelosi's recent trip to Taiwan, just to name two examples. Anyway, we are really glad to have this opportunity to hear your thoughts on the evolution of China from the formation of the Chinese Communist Party 101 years ago to the present and especially the seeming paradox of communism and entrepreneurship. So let's start with Mao Zedong and the situation at that beginning of the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, in 1921. Thank you for the, you know, sort of interesting framing of our discussion. I do think 
many of the points that you raised in some ways illustrated, I think there's just a lack of understanding between the West, primarily the US and China. And I hope that we'll have a chance to go into all those items in detail. You asked about the founding of the CCP, about about Mao. And I think this is in many ways an inspiration for our book because both Kunyan and I really are researchers that are interested in sort of understanding how and why events, leaders, culture, institutions that occurred in the past provide important background and material to sort of understand the present. And that's really the theme of our book and how illustrating your question, I think, you know, much of the recent thinking about China has been that, okay, China has really opened up its markets. It's becoming much more free economically, that that will necessarily lead to being more free politically. And that's actually not occurred. And I think it's one of the reasons why people are so perplexed, because on the one hand, sort of economic development theory and prior examples of countries have shown that this sort of economic and political relationship. And also, I think that we in the West feel we have a great system as the Chinese people continue to become more and more economically free, why wouldn't they want to be sort of like us, so to speak? And I think these misperceptions have clouded judgment a lot. And so what we try to do in the book is in some ways trace the historical through line from Mao, the early communist principles, sort of the ideology around nationalism, controlling history, propaganda, and show how those, even in spite of the liberalizing economic relations actually come through in President Xi, who many people are some ways are surprised at how he has taken the reins of China, so to speak, in a, such a hardline fashion. But you know, actually, if you look back to Mao and what happened before the liberalizing period, it actually makes a little more sense. Share with our listeners what the situation was, Sure. why Mao Zedong and his comrades chose to go the route of communism, and then bring us up to the success of their revolution. The situation when the Communist Party was founded and up through you know, the 1940s, as you mentioned, it was founded in 1921, so just recently celebrated its centenary. China was in somewhat of a disorder, disarray. The Qing dynasty, which was the last sort of imperial dynasty, fell very early in the 20th century, so early 1900s. And then there was a series of these different leaders or leaders in various sections of China. So it was really a very fragmented leadership. And Mao we can talk about all the disasters, uh, both sort of economic and human, that under Mao. But Mao was really pretty good military commander and also a pretty good, in some ways, philosopher, communicator, you know, he had the very evocative phrases to describe situations. So how he described China at the time was like a pan of loose sand. You can imagine this sort of a shallow pan with sand just sort of floating around. It wasn't really cohering. And so he really felt that communism inspired very much by Marx and Engels, similar to the Soviet Union and, and very much supported by the Soviet Union, were the, in some ways, ideological tools to bring coherence to the Chinese nation. They were in opposition to the somewhat fragmented power at the time, the Kuomintang, who actually then went on to Taiwan and for a long time was the governing party in Taiwan. But Mao felt that actually, because China was a very rural population, that actually 
how to adapt communism to China was different than Marx and Engels and actually as sort of Lenin and Stalin did at USSR, which was about organizing industrial workers in cities. So Mao felt that actually to organize China, you need to focus on the rural peasants. And so this was, I guess, seen as conceptual to move forward in communism to focus on rural peasants as opposed to industrial laborers. And thus, Mao was able to really successfully win over the population. He was able to, starting from a very small army, they had the long march where this year plus long retreat and sort of reassembly of the troops in Yan'an, which was in Western China, able to come from that and succeed over the KMT. Part of the situation, too, was actually World War II intervened. So part of this time from the late 1930s, actually, Japan was conquering numerous places in China. Actually, so Mao and the KMT actually got sort of funding and military arms from the U.S., uh, which then able actually enabled him and the communists to overthrow the KMT. And relevant to today, and just as an aside, Taiwan is portrayed these days as this bastion of democracy and freedom and all this kind of stuff. But historically, after the Kuomintang went there, it was a rather authoritarian state until somewhat recently. Oh, that's that's totally right. And even from what I understand, the two main parties in Taiwan, the Kuomintang or KMT, still exists in Taiwan and is still much more, I don't know, sort of hardline focused and and is the party that is much more closely aligned with mainland China and potentially thinking like maybe have some sort of accommodation with mainland China, whereas the DPP, the, the other party, which the current president Tsai Ing-wen is from, has younger members, actually is much more focused on independence. So, I mean, it's interesting. There's generational reasons, there's different party reasons, but yeah, Taiwan is, it transitioned, you know, 20, 30 years ago from authoritarianism to democracy. And still there's a little tension there around the topic. This was considered a civil war between the Kuomintang and the Communist Party, and the CCP prevailed. Yeah. October 1st, 1949 was sort of their Independence Day. But my goodness, it left the entire country a shambles. I mean, between the civil war, the effects of colonial interventions earlier, and right. and then the Japanese, I mean, the atrocities they committed are, are legendary, infamous, I should say. But anyway, right. Mao Zedong is the de facto leader by the time everything settles down. And he's got to put this country back together again. Right. Uh, so what does he do? Yeah, good question. I think part of it was transitioning from really what was a military command into command of sort of the Chinese landmass and provinces. And so he actually had a pretty unique, in some ways, governing philosophy, very different than one season Xi Jinping, actually of actually allowing for a little bit more of decentralization. So, for instance, as a military commander, the troops in some ways and the other generals that were under his command, he actually recognized that what actually is going on 
in the field at that particular time is the most important thing to respond to. And so I'm sort of forgetting the precise phrase, but he had a phrase to describe this, that it's important to be able to react to the, you know, sort of day to day as opposed to following the, what the central authority says. And I think this actually really then influenced how he set up the governance of China. And a lot of the military commanders went on to be provincial leaders, city leaders. And so they were sort of used to this. And China and I think this is a big difference why China was able to, in some ways, economically succeed over the past decades when the Soviet Union sort of collapsed, is that there is this very much decentralized economic system where localities actually have freedom to adapt to the challenges in that locality. And this has led to a lot of, some could see it negative, some some could see it positive, competition within the localities of China around economic growth. And so there is this saying, which, which Xi Jinping says now about sort of, he says it to avoid it, sort of GDP heroism. But for a long time, I think a big reason why China's economy grew so so much or so quickly is that the main key performance indicator for provincial and city leaders was GDP. And so everyone was very, very focused on those issues. And he also developed certain slogans, I guess, that we could learn from such as seeking truth from facts. I mean, wow, what an innovation that is these days. (laughs) (laughs) Not that they always lived up to it, but at least they stated it. Yeah, and I do think, like I mentioned before, I mean, he, I mean, slogans is the right way to put it, but I think really very insightful around thinking of these sort of evocative phrases that actually capture reality in a, in a way that can rally people and rally the troops initially and then sort of the populace later on. And yes, tr- seeking truth from facts is similar to this idea of seeing the local commanders or local provincial and, and city leaders actually knowing what is going on in their own locale. And I know the book that we wrote the core, in some ways, empirical part is understanding Chinese entrepreneurs and Chinese business leaders. And, you know, many of them cite this seeking truth from facts as really a key principle of their business because it actually forces them in some ways to get out on the field, to talk to consumers. It's almost when applied to business like a marketing research ideology, believe it or not. So it's interesting how you know, many of these sort of nationalistic political slogans of Mao have been turned into business slogans for leaders in China. So he gets the country together pretty effectively. And then he institutes the Great Leap Forward. And this, as you bring out in your book, Chris, well, first of all, it ended up being a disaster, but they weren't getting truth from facts in this. So. Right, exactly. <laughs> so um, talk about that, and then we'll talk about the effect it's had on leadership later on. The Great Leap Forward was this, I guess, sort of industrial slash political campaign designed by Mao to, I think it was, surpass the UK and equal the US in steel output. And the strategy to do this was 
by actually having this sort of decentralized steel production, these sort of backyard furnaces. And a corollary of this was collectivization of agriculture and living arrangements. So for instance, you know, each individual house would not need to have metal cookware, metal silverware, metal, whatever the people were sort of using to eat and serve, prepare their food. So all this could be melted down in these backyard furnaces. And then people, because of the collectivization, people would eat in community dining halls. The agriculture was also collectivized. So, you know, much less people had to work in the fields because the fields were larger, not very small, sort of family-owned plots. And then those other people could work in industry. Well, for many reasons, this was a huge and disastrous experiment, really an epic failure, so to speak. On the one hand, actually, this idea of backyard furnaces doesn't work. I mean, you can melt the various tools and implements down, but actually, unless you have very, very specialized blasting furnaces, you're not able to actually create usable steel for industry. And the second thing is that under collectivization, there's a lot of free riding, unfortunately, and a lot of crops actually not being produced and not and going to waste. And so what happened sort of towards the end of the Great Leap Forward and then and sort of the years or two afterwards was known as the Great Famine. And this was a period where 30 to 40 million Chinese died of starvation and hundreds of millions probably lived in Hungary, Hungary. I mean, it was a very... You know, in the 20th century, I think it was probably the events more than World War II, more than Stalin's purges of mass deaths. And so it was a really very sort of sad instance in Chinese history and very much attributable to Mao. So many, you know, I mean, I do give him credit for some of his military successes, success in rallying the Chinese people with evocative phrases and his ideology. But, you know, in the end of it, you know, has led to the deaths of probably more, you know, the single individuals led to more deaths than anyone else in perhaps human history. Chris Marquis, in your book, Mao and Markets, The Communist Roots of Chinese Enterprise, you posit what you call the imprinting theory. Talk about how the experiences of people who live, who survive that famine and the Great Leap Forward, then went on to become a generation that became entrepreneurs and political leaders. So how did that impact them? Sure. So, so you mentioned imprinting. Let me give a little bit of background on that. So your listeners might remember from their I don't know, high school biology book, there was this German bioecologist named Conrad Lorenz, and, and he's the, the person that had this idea of imprinting. And it was in biology uh, and ecology studies. And what he would do is he would have different animals sort of after they're born, what they see first, actually, they sort of imprint on as their mother. So there's these famous pictures that people might have seen of him with geese or ducks or something following them, because he would be the first person thing that see and they would think that he was their mother. Kunyuan and I and, and others as well have applied some of this logic in the social science sphere in that sort of these early influential events can actually have lasting effect on individuals. 
And so there's research in finance and economics that has looked at sort of U.S. leaders and how going through the Great Depression has had a really lasting effect on the ways that they that later on lead their companies, so maybe being more frugal, et cetera. So we try to develop this in China and how Mao and part of what we talk about is his various ideological teaching and how those are transmitted. Another aspect are these campaigns, mass campaigns, and, you, and we've been talking about the Great Leap Forward. And so we look at two different ways in which the Great Leap Forward and the Great Famine then have had a lasting effect on Chinese entrepreneurs. One of them may be somewhat obvious, one of them may be a little more surprising. So the somewhat obvious one is that leaders that lived through the Great Famine and the Great, or Great Leap Forward and Great Famine actually are much more frugal than other leaders. And we have a, a database, a very detailed database of thousands of entrepreneurs over a pretty long period of time, you know, about 30 years, that we're able to sort of pretty rigorously test this uh, statistically. So if an entrepreneur was in a place that had famine after the Great Leap Forward, those leaders end up being much more frugal. And I think this is very consistent with the work that is done on depression. People lived through the Great Depression in the United States. The area where we have findings that might be a little more surprising is actually around sort of creativity and innovation. So one of the entrepreneurs that we studied is the founder of a company called Wanxiang. Wanxiang itself means, you know, sort of 10,000 directions. And it was a company that originally rose to fame making universal ball joints, which are used in automotive and other applications. And it's a tremendously large company, owns many companies. It's not very well known, but it's one of the most successful Chinese industrial companies. So the, the founder of that actually said, living through the Great Famine instilled in me this making something out of nothing philosophy. So I can go to the junkyard and I can find a bunch of scraps and I can put them together into something useful. And so we actually try to test as well the extent to which companies that are founded by entrepreneurs that have had sort of deeper great famine experiences, you know, whether they're engaging in more innovative and more creative practices in their companies. And we also find that's the case uh, as well. And I learned a new word from your book, exaptation. <laughs> which I think will appeal to some of our do-it-yourself rural listeners. It's using features or capabilities developed for one purpose for another. Right. And this is this is we try to connect this to the Great Leap Forward. And th this is also a concept that came out of biology. And the one really famous example is feathers of birds. You know, feathers of birds were apparently evolved as a way to keep them warm. But then actually sort of the, their lightweight nature and the way they are actually is what enabled birds to fly. So that's an example of exaptation. So it's not adaptation, but it's something that is taken and sort of used for a purpose, not that it was originally used for. And some of your older listeners, I mean, certainly I I'm, I include myself in this, might remember CDs, that, and that actually those CDs then ended up getting accepted into digital video discs, which is a different application of a technology. So the technology is originally just for, you know, sort of for audio, and then it gets used actually for video as well. After the Great Famine, we're into the early 60s, and things are starting to fall apart because, I mean, 
30, 40 million people dying of hunger is not good politically. And out of this, I mean, I'm really synopsizing here, came the Cultural Revolution. Let's talk about that, what it was, and how that has impacted the current generation of leaders. Good question. Yeah. So another major campaign of Miles was this Cultural Revolution, which, you know, after the Great Leap Forward, he in some ways took a little bit more of a back seat than he was for the previous 30 years or so, you know, as a revolutionary commander and then sort of initial leader of the People's Republic of China. And I think he, he wasn't very happy to be in, in this sort of secondary role and being criticized about the Great Leap Forward. So he really wanted to retake the reins and his strategy to do so was through this cultural revolution where basically the main hierarchy was sort of put aside for these revolutionary committees, these red guards, which people might be familiar with, uh, where sort of the, the core institutions of schools and government were either closed or, or abolished and actually turned over to these sort of roaming roaming groups of of teenagers in, in many cases, which would then have sort of fights and wars among themselves. So it was a period of tremendous political and economic disorder. And as well, there was a period when many urban younger Chinese were actually, so schools were closed also, you know, the idea being that, you know, the sort of intellectual teachers were not the people to learn from. Actually, the people you should learn from are the workers, the peasants that are sort of the core strength of China in some ways. So many school age kids were sent to the countryside to work alongside the rural population to sort of learn the values of being a peasant, basically. Importantly, one of the people who did this was the current supreme leader, so to speak, of China, Xi Jinping. He spent seven years in rural China as a laborer. And there's been some research in economics and political science that has shown that actually people that lived through the Cultural Revolution in this way, where they maybe they were out of school or they were one of these youths that was sent down to the countryside, actually have much lower levels of trust in others. They actually have much less respect of institutions. And this is what we find in our book as well. We look at the, the again, sort of the, our core focus is on business leaders. And we find that leaders that had a, sort of in some ways a deeper cultural revolution experience or imprint end up being much more likely to default on loans in their company, put on these lists of the shameless lists, as they're called, people that are debtors. Many of them end up getting disappeared, et cetera. And so I think that this is another interesting sort of in some ways institutional element in China. And I think that it's not talked about as much except around President Xi. But I wonder if much of what's been written is how people are so surprised that he has ended all these sort of norms and changed some of the rules around succession as far as sort of stacking his cronies, so to speak, on the standing committee. Part of that is because of his living through this and just not having the respective institutions and trust in others, which, as I mentioned, sort of has been shown in the economics and political science in addition to our book. And Xi Jinping's father had been rather high up in the CCP, and he was arrested and he spent close to 10 years in prison. He was one of the ones that got brought down in this. So that surely sure. had an impact on Xi Jinping. 
Without a doubt. Yeah. So th- so a lot of the senior leaders at the time were purged. Xi Jinping's father, Xi Zhongshun, was his name as one. Deng Xiaoping, actually, who then went on and is really credited with the reform and opening period in China that started after Mao's death, also was stripped of his positions. And yeah, Xi Jinping's father, it's for a period under Mao, was the head of propaganda. And then actually after Mao passed away, he was the governor of Guangdong province, which is in the southern province that is on the border of Hong Kong, and was famous for being one of the very early examples of opening, opening markets in China. Shenzhen, the city of Shenzhen is, is in Guangdong province. You have a quote of uh, Deng Xiaoping's that I thought was very <laughs> helpful. Because of our curiosity of the seeming contradiction between communism and capitalism, Deng is attributed to have said, contradiction is an aspect of nature. (laughs) So (laughs) that's just as an aside. Then there was one more major period, and that was the third front construction development period. And this was a, a very successful in terms of being kept secret. Your book was the first I knew of it. This was extended over over a period of time. And, you know, what it means is sort of this third front construction is that at the time, China had broken with the Soviet Union. Soviet Union was very early supporter of China. But in the 50s, for, for a variety of, of reasons, China broke with Soviet Union it was obviously for much of the 50s, 60s, you know, after World War II really was not seen necess- as an ally of the U.S. up until Richard Nixon ended up going there. And so the Third Front, the sort of places that were remote, hidden, mountainous, far away from on the Soviet border on the west and the coast on the east, where the U.S. presumably through maybe Japan yeah, or wherever would attack. So these were places where military and important industrial applications were in some ways hidden and developed. And so my first experience with this was actually in the city of Xi'an, which people probably know from the Terracotta Warriors. If they've been to China, they might have been to to Xi'an. But it was also a city where air travel advances and research were done. And still, still even to this day, actually, a lot of China's research in the air industry is there. I visited a university there once, and they gave me actually a model of a Chinese air defense fighter, which was developed on their campus, which was sort of interesting souvenir. But, you know, as that example describes a little bit, so there are all these very detailed or very deep pockets of expertise around China in places where they would not necessarily be otherwise. And so this has led to a lot of entrepreneurship throughout China. So, you know, China is obviously very well known for its East Coast cities like Beijing or Shanghai or Shenzhen, Guangzhou. But actually, and there is a lot of, I mean, that's a lot a lot where, you know, tech innovation center happens, but a lot of innovation happens in a variety of seemingly random inland places, but actually it's not random because they are places where a lot of this investment in the third front was done. And then over time, as China is changing and opening up, those plants were many times turned over to the sort of local bosses that were running them. So then they developed them. Well, that could happen because China has a planned economy and the political is centralized and the economic is decentralized to a certain extent. But in this case, the political centralization decided that this had to be done for strategic reasons. 
So could you go into a little bit more of that dynamic between the political centralization and the economic decentralization? Sure. And I think that this is a key difference that between China and the USSR. And I think that, you know, many times us in the West think sort of communist system, the USSR failed in transitioning from communism to more market oriented system. So then that must apply generally. But China actually, by having a more decentralized economic system, actually, it provides it a lot more flexibility and redundancy. The innovations initially when China was transitioning in the late 1970s, early 1980s under Deng Xiaoping were these special economic zones. So because the economy is relatively decentralized, certain cities or regions could be picked to like, okay, we're going to basically wall your market off, so to speak, and you can experiment with these market forces. So Shenzhen is the most famous. There were initially, you know, sort of four early ones, really. They were the ones that were sort of in some ways. Shenzhen is right across the border to Hong Kong. There's Zhuhai, which is right by Macau, and some that's sort of closer, sort of right across the Straits of Taiwan from Taiwan. And so the idea is that because there is a lot of redundancy locally in China, that they can actually have these experiments. And this, this has been throughout China's developments in the last 40 years, frequently things are sort of experimented on in localities. Say, okay, let's see how this policy works by just looking at one small area. We learn and then we can either stop it because, and it's in a very self-contained area, so it doesn't really have a big impact on the rest of the country, or maybe refine it and roll it out to the rest of the country, which special economic zones, I mean, they ended up rolling them out quite a bit. And, and in some ways, the philosophy behind them is what you know Chinese economy in general is now. One of the things that is not that easy to understand is the Hoku household registration system and the impact that has on society. That's a good question. So this dates to Mao's period. I mean, I, you know, certainly the Great Leap Forward because people wanted to leave their areas and there were even guards posted at the borders. But maybe even before that. My recollection on the history of the Hukou is probably not as uh, I should revisit that. But the idea being is that each individual has a registration in certain locales, and it's actually very, very hard to change that. So if you are born in some rural place in China, for you to actually be officially recognized as a resident of a place like Beijing or Shanghai, it's actually a huge, it's almost impossible to get done. The thing that is, though, many people actually leave their area of the Hukou to go work. I mean, literally hundreds of millions of people from different rural areas in China go to work in construction and service industry in China's largest, largest cities. But because these individuals do not have their Hukou registration in, let's say, Shanghai or Beijing, they can't get married. They can't, can't send their kids to school. They don't really have access to, to health care through hospitals because they don't have Hukou registration in that area. So it is this sort of like almost internal passports and visas in some ways that you must have to be able to be recognized as like an official resident of a place. And if you're not officially recognized, then you have don't have access to any of these city services. And I think, you know, it's one way that actually China has been able to develop so rapidly because 
there are all these, in some ways, undocumented internal migrants that can be paid very cheaply that don't actually have any right to to city services in the place where they are. And there's literally hundreds of millions of these people working in places where they are not actually recognized as real, real, so to speak, residents. This brings up one of the attributes, I guess, of entrepreneurship, and that is the attention paid to consumers, which having been raised with the news media in the United States, I had the impression like it's like take it or leave it. We don't care if you like it. <laughs> but that's not so. And you give the example of Xi Yuzhu and the giant group and melatonin, his yeah. brain platinum. Share with our <laughs> listeners about that. Sure, that's a good, good. good uh, I, I appreciate you reading the book so so carefully, Joy. So yeah, I mean, it's it's. I think once the Chinese economy sort of opened up, I think there was sort of all this pent up demand for entrepreneurship. And people were very creative in how they ended up sort of competing. And so this one example that we give, it's actually an entrepreneur that used a lot of Mao's principles, Chinese philosophical principles as well, to really design and carry out his marketing research plan. So for instance, he started in rural areas. So one of Mao's famous dictates was seize the city from the villages. And the idea being that when you're starting out and you're, maybe your position is not very strong, don't try to go right to the large cities or to the major environments to try to compete. You should actually start in smaller, more rural places, build up success, build up your assets, build up your experience. And then when you're strong, go to the city. This was a key principle that allowed the CCP to actually conquer the, the KMT. And many business leaders actually end up using this, as you mentioned, sort of the brain platinum as an example. As you mentioned, melatonin, so so a sleep aid. He also really capitalized on sort of the Confucian idea of taking care of one's parents, you know, filial piety. And so his marketing plan, which he sort of discovered, again, through sort of Mao's ideas of sort of, in some ways, <laughs> persistence in, in, in learning and, and market research, that actually this is something that kids would buy for their parents as in some ways a show of sort of caring for them. And so he was very successful in marketing this, not to the people that would eventually be taking it because they were very frugal parents, many cases living in rural areas. But as their kids moved to the cities, maybe as one of these undocumented migrant laborers, this was a way for them to take some of their hard-earned money and actually show some filial piety to their parents by, by buying this product for them. Okay, so we've been saying that it's political centralization, but I would love it if you would talk about the CCP branches oh, sure. in the various businesses. Yeah, so this is something that's pretty interesting and it's pretty controversial nowadays. I mean, there's a number of in, I don't know, it's probably about six months ago where there were a number of news articles about sort of leading multinationals from, you know, Goldman Sachs to HSBC to others, whereas even Marco Rubio actually came out and really speaks very forcefully against these 
CCP branches. So these are also called a little bit more pejoratively CCP cells, sort of these communist cells that by that term, it sounds like they're infiltrating these companies. And I and I think that's a, certainly a reasonable potential interpretation. The idea that multinationals are having, in some ways, a shadow hierarchy that is beholden to the CCP is certainly concerning from, I don't know, corporate governance standpoint, from potentially U.S. national security standpoint. But these are organizations that exist throughout China, throughout Chinese companies. Now, of course, the state-owned companies, which we haven't talked a, a lot about yet, but many of the, in some ways, more critical industries in China telecommunications, finance, energy, are mostly controlled by state-owned companies. And so these state-owned companies, and in many cases, some of them are partially privatized and actually even trade on large exchanges, but they are basically also run by these CCP party committees, party branches. Over the recent decades, they've been expanding quite a bit into private companies. So companies like Alibaba, Tencent, Etc. And I think that there might be a law now in China that actually all companies have to have all companies of a certain size have to have these CCP branches. But also they've been extending to multinationals, and this is the cases I sort of start out our discussion with. People frequently try to equate business in China with sort of state ownership. Is Huawei state owned or not? Is ZTE? Another large telecommunication company that's been sort of in the political crosshairs state-owned or not. And I think this, in some ways, misses the point because there are a lot of other mechanisms for the CCP to control organizations in China. The CCP branches is one of those, although these organizations also have sort of legitimate HR functions. They also provide a nice tie to the government because government relations is obviously a much more important aspect of business in China than it is in the U.S., so anyway, there's a lot of these different ways for the CCP to sort of have its influence on business without even ownership and and let alone just ideological, in some ways, training, because many of the, or not many, sort of all of the Chinese that are sort of leading these large companies, they've been through the Chinese education system, which has required classes on Maoism up through college. If you look at the media environments, movies, tourism sites, it's really very much reinforcing the, in some ways, power and control of the CCP. So the, the branches are, are one of these mechanisms of influence and control sort of beyond formal ownership. Chris, you also write about the 500,000 to 2 million internet trolls known as the 50 cent party because they get seven cents to every delete. But that there are up to 20 million volunteers deleting posts critical of the CCP. In the interest of time, we won't go into that. But it it does make me cringe a little in terms of thought control. And, and well, as a media person, I want it to be as free as possible. But anyway, I have to get into, as our last topic, the seizure of power and control. And Xi Jinping certainly seems to have done that since he became the power in 2012. And particularly... What happened at the 20th National Congress of the CCP with Hu Jintao's removal in public? What do you make of that? 
Yeah, no, that's that is really, I think, a very telling situation. So first of all, anyone who who has been to any sort of, I don't know, even quasi government or state owned event in China, these are very highly orchestrated. The ceremonies are in place. The fact that the former supreme leader of China would be escorted out is just unbelievable on one level. Two, the the sort of explanations for why this occurred. So the the government or the CCP's explanation is that he had health problems, which I think is rubbish, basically. A very conspiratorial assessment is that this was she very much showing his power and, and a purge in some ways of Hu Jintao. And that might be going a little too far, I think. And I think that a more likely explanation is that, and you and it's sort of, you can see in the videos that have shown the sort of rustling of paper and his discussion with the person. So, you know, Hu Jintao was seated to the left of Xi Jinping and the person that was seated to the left of, of him, you know, sort of his negotiation with that leader. Some people even shown lip reading, saying something like they're not there, that the decision's been made. So, so basically the sort of theory is that you know, when Hu Jintao sees the names that are the, this is when the future, this next sort of leadership set is going to be announced. His favored candidates, one of whom is Li Kachunk, are not on the list, and he gets a little upset and agitated, and then that is why she has him removed. The thing that I found really sort of shocking and disturbing uh, in some ways is that as you watch the video and you see Hu Jintao sort of escorted out, he goes past, I don't know, 20 to 30 other Chinese leaders, all of whom he's worked decades with. uh, And no one even turns to acknowledge him or show any expression of sort of concern or anything. People are just staring stone-faced ahead, which really indicates that people are probably pretty pretty afraid of Xi Jinping. The past, really, the entire 10 years of his reign, so to speak, has been a very active anti-corruption, so-called anti-corruption campaign, where a lot of it is him purging his enemies. Just before the 20th Party Congress, there was a variety of people that were purged. And so I think he very much leads by fear. And I think people are probably tremendously afraid of him. And it's why he's been able to sort of really consolidate power in such a way that he has. And again, one can wonder how much his experience as a young person in the Cultural Revolution has forged his methods. Chris Marquis, we are out of time. I want to give you just one minute to share with our listeners final words. Yeah, sure. Well, well, uh, thanks so much, Joy, for having me on. I really uh, appreciated the the opportunity to talk and really enjoyed your questions. And I think as our listeners think about... China. I want to come back to, you know, you started us off with, you know, discussions of many of the horrible sort of anti-Asian things that have happened in these recent years. And I think it's important to remember that even though maybe the Chinese Communist Party does not align with our 
U.S. values that the Chinese people themselves individually, and particularly, you know, and the ones that are here living in the U.S., many Chinese of Chinese born are U.S. citizens and contribute tremendously to our country that think just because maybe there's tension between the U.S. and China governments does not mean that, that we shouldn't value tremendously the contributions of Chinese people to the United States. Good words to leave with. Christopher Marquis, thank you so much for joining us today on Forthright Radio and for writing the book Mao and Markets, The Communist Roots of Chinese Enterprise. We very much appreciate it. Oh, thanks so much. I mean, I really appreciate your questions. Like, it's, you, you obviously have really looked through the book and, ha and had a, lo a lot of interesting things to discuss. So, so really, thank you so much. You have just heard a conversation with Cambridge University professor Christopher Marquis about his book, co-written with Kunyuan Chao, Mao and Markets, The Communist Roots of Chinese Enterprise, published by Yale University Press. Learning of President Xi's early life experiences, his being sent down from Beijing to work in a remote rural area for seven years after the purging and arrest of his father during the Cultural Revolution, made me think of his contemporary, Ai Weiwei, and his early life experience, and how differently the two men influenced the world. One, a ruthless authoritarian, consolidating close to absolute control over the lives of 1.4 billion people, and the other, undaunted despite brutal repression in his artistic expression of beauty, creativity, and human rights. We share now excerpts of an interview from 2017 with Ai Weiwei on Democracy Now! I was born in 1957. That's the year my father was purged as a so-called rightist. He had been a friend of Mao Zedong? Yeah, he's the same generation, a little bit younger than Mao Zedong, and they all spent time in, before the new nation established. So he belongs to this early revolutionary group. And he's a poet. He studied in Paris. And right after he came back to China, he was being put in jail for six years. Then later, joined the revolution. After the 49, he was criticized. And uh, with about uh, half a million of the intellectuals in China, they're being all put in the labor camps to cut a re-education. I grew up in these camps. During the Cultural Revolution, he really has to do very hard labors, insulted, beaten. This was in the Gobi Desert? Yeah, in the northwest, the Gobi Desert. Very far, far, farest location you can get uh, on Chinese map. Oh. As a child, you have no way to think otherwise because everybody is in an extremely difficult situation. You think uh, it's, it's like you stand in the rain everywhere is, is under the rain. You know, it's not, uh, there's no exception. So he spent about 20 years, cannot write a words, you know, to doing a lot of, uh, to clean the public toilet. And uh, he often been beaten. And uh, sometimes he comes home with all the ink poured from his uh, head, you know, it's become totally black. And going through a lot of this kind of insult, it's it's just uh, there's a lot of meetings. The the meetings he have to stand in front of all the people, and they would uh, say all kind of bad words about him. And he has to confess his crime, which he never committed any crime. 
My mother. She also was raped. Yeah, she also have to struggle. He has to. She has to try and find something to feed those children. And you know, we we living underground. It's like a hole you digging down, and the whole family living underground. You helped your father burn your whole library, except for this one French encyclopedia. My father have a huge collection of books. Art books about impressionist, about Renaissance, even medieval artworks. Because the right guard always come to my home, have to check on those books every page, page by page. They would, if they find anything like nudity or abstract art, they would really start to to really question my father and humiliate him. So one day, my father said, "We have to burn all those books because those books attract so many people to come to our home." So I helped him to burn those books page by page because it's、um, and a lot of poetry books. His、uh, literary man has a huge collection of books. So we we burned it everything. Soon after, we we sent to the labor camp. I stayed till I was eighteen、uh, or nineteen. Then after Chairman Mao's death, he has been rehabilitated. Rehabilitated. Yeah. So we moved to Beijing. At that time, university started to open again after ten years shut down. I went into Beijing Film Institute. This first time, China have a war we call the democracy war. So we put our artworks, our writings,、uh, our poetry on that war. Very soon after the war being turned down, and、uh, people get involved, some of them being put in jail. So that's the reason I decide how to leave China. It's unbelievable. You think China just after Cultural Revolution, and everybody has to think about、uh, the lessons they paid for、uh, for this kind of harsh political movement. Then some young people start thinking how to make the nation or change it or to protect it from this kind of political event. Then immediately Deng Xiaoping crashed the the, the students and the people who who is trying to make China a more progressive. I had a chance, so I, I left. I come to United States. I stayed in New York about ten years. You befriended Allen Ginsberg. Yes, he is in the neighborhood, and he went China at that time. And after he comes back, he had a poetry reading in St. Mark's Church. So I was、uh, listening to his reading, and he talked about China trip. He, he said he had met a, a, a poet. I figured out that's my father because the story he's telling. So when he comes down, I said,、uh, "You just met my father." So he was very surprised. Then we become friend. The time I moved out to China, I, I was telling my mom I will never go back. My mom was very worried when she sent me to the airport because this this child has no money and、uh, knows nothing about English. I told her, "Don't worry, I'm going home." So she's kind of sad. She knows I'm, I will never come come back to China. But after twelve years, I decide to go back. Because my father was ill. By 1993, I went back. China had some change. You know, people become better off. There's a road being fixed and some tall buildings in in the city. But basically, 
it never changed the, the, the political structure. So there's no freedom of speech, no independent press. You know, it's very still very harsh on 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 any kind of ideas or or discussion. So I come up an idea to publish some underground books to document Chinese art movement. So every year we we made a book. And the book has no title, just black cover, gray cover, or white cover, uh, in protesting the the censorship. And uh, those books documents the underground movement of uh, art at that time, because this is simply no any newspaper or magazines would talk about contemporary art. Then I opened the first art gallery in China. It's a non-profit place to show undergroundly about、uh, Chinese art. Then by 2000, year 2000, I curated the art show. It's also about、uh, contemporary young artists' work. By 2005, I had a chance to learn how to use internet and、uh, start to typing and writing articles. Suddenly, I become very, very popular on internet because. I would write three, four articles a day, and next day I would see a few hundred thousand articles、uh, repost. I thought this is a really beautiful thing you can do, and、uh, with this nation has no tradition of freedom of speech. People basically are very scared about their writing, but I openly discuss、uh, politics or or anything you know with my own. Independent view or opinion, so that was so popular for very short time. The views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production, hosted and produced by Joy LaClaire. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, forthright.media. You can also find links to articles referenced or pertinent to the interviews there at forthright.media. This episode of Forthright Radio marks the 18th anniversary of the very first program, the day after Thanksgiving in 2004, fixing a hole in KZYX's schedule due to the holiday. Thanks to all who support our community radio station. It feels good to be doing this together. And you can feel good by contributing too. Just go to kzyx.org and click on the support button at the top of the page. Till next time, this is Joy LaClaire, gratefully signing out for now.